Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Whale Nerds Podcast. This is episode 122. My name is Slater, and I'm here with Caitlin. <laughs> Hello. Ooh, almost said Adam. <laughs> Adam's out of town, but we have a guest this week. Uh, we are chatting with Katarina Oddly. She's a Nat Geo explorer and founder and director of Whales of Guerrero, a community-driven research education and training-based program uh, or program based in Southwest uh, Pacific, Mexico. Katarina has participated in whale research and community building projects around the world since 1997 and has a 25-year-long relationship with the Mexican community where she lives and works. Uh, Katarina's work with Whales of Grow has been featured by the United Nations and other organizations for its collaborative approach to marine conservation. Uh, she also serves as a board member, committee member, and advisor to a number of international marine science and conservation organizations, including Sci Society for Marine Mammalogy, uh, the Mexican Marine Mammal Society, and the IUCN. Uh, she divides her time between uh, the village of Barra de, Barra de Potosi in Mexico and then also in Portland, Oregon. Uh, when she's not looking for whales or working with communities, she likes tracking carnivores on Mount Hood, hunting for truffles with her trusty Labrador Cholula, and you can learn more about the Whales of Guerrero project and how to get involved at whalesinmexico.com. So welcome, Katarina. We're so excited to have you. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> yeah, of course. How's the uh, carnival carnivore tracking on Mount Hood this summer? Well, I haven't really been up actually this uh, summer, but last summer uh, was the last time I got up there and we did find a lot of interesting foxes. So oh, that was cool. the, big, the big hot topic uh, of the year last year. Nice. Um, also, just question about your background. You started as a travel writer, is that right? Well, um, I actually started with a degree in ancient religion from Berkeley. Um, okay. Then... I became a traveler and which turned me into a travel writer. Then I worked at the Exploratorium in San Francisco. Oh, cool. I love uh, that place. Yeah, me too. Uh, and then I became a communications person. So I started working on, uh, I got very interested in how to get people excited and connected with the world around them. And so that includes, of course, science. And I fell in love with whales when I it was 1997 that I got the, I became a massive whale nerd and uh, then began doing the work with the whales around then. Awesome. That's awesome. When did you get started or interested in the marine field? Well, well 1997. Yeah, um, I always, I always wanted to do something that would use my mind and take me outside. And it's always been about the ocean for me, but I didn't really think about whales until I lived on Baker beach, right by the golden gate bridge in 1997. And now I'm going to out myself as a big giant hippie and tell you <laughs> that I fell in love with whales because I started having dreams about them in 1997 <laughs> And I would basically wake up from these dreams and it was like, oh my gosh, there's these animals out there and they're huge and they live at the bottom of the ocean and they know things and they're smart and they just are these aliens and I have to see one. And so I wasn't making much money working at the Exploratorium, but I saved up my museum workers wages and 
took boats out to the Farallon Islands, which was the closest you could come to a whale watch tour back then. And I'd get out. I think I went in May, which is the bumpiest, windiest month to go out. Yeah. And went out for a eight-hour trip to the Farallons and saw one gray whale so distantly, but <laughs> that's what got me totally hooked. That uh, one tiny fluke of a gray whale. And then I started saving my money to get closer and closer to the whales and volunteering for people to get to be near the whales. And I became a total fangirl of whale scientists. <laughs> so I um, tricked them into spending time with me because I've always been able to write. So I started a zine called Whoosh, the zine for whale lovers. And I would call my very most in incredibly fanned out whale scientists and say, would you like to be featured in my whale magazine? And they would usually say yes. And I would go find mm -hmm. them in their museum or their lab and interview them and write a glow piece about them in my little zine. And um, that got me closer to whale scientists in that way. And as I volunteered and wrote more and more about them, I accrued knowledge enough to be able to uh, begin my own project in 2013. Wow, that's awesome. Well, I it's kind like... of coming. Oh, go ahead, Sleater. No, no, go, go. You first. I was going to say, it's kind of coming full circle because that's literally what we do with the podcast is we find people that like we want to talk to and we're like, will you please be on our podcast? Yeah, I said it's a podcast and not a magazine now. Yeah. <laughs> I feel yeah, like... totally. I, I get that. Yep. I feel like the gray whale is such a... Uh a starter kit whale for people, especially from California or like the West coast. It's just like everyone's first whale. And they always, it's always like, I kind of saw it. Cause that's kind of what gray whales are anyways. <laughs> it's like, you know, and then it's like, yeah. but I needed to see more. <laughs> oh, totally. And then there's the orca phase, right? Where you like, you go yeah. through the, the, the gray whale and then you realize that orcas are just the Kings of the ocean and they're so smart and, and yeah. all of that. And maybe you jump right into that from free Willy or not. But I think that most people have to go through their orca stage and some yes. people stick at it for life, but yeah. I, I yes. definitely, um, I've had a lot of people work for me at this point and most of them are really in the secret heart of their orca stage and they're making do with studying humpbacks with me, but they, what they really want is to be around orcas all the time. And I did that too. I mean, I totally, um, I went up and I worked on Vancouver Island and um, I worked in, um, I was down in um, Argentina at Peninsula Valdez, just staring oh, cool. for a month, getting a lopsided sunburn from a mile away from where I could get any good view because there was, I mean, I didn't have the money or the 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 credentials to get that $300 a day permit to be super close to them. But yeah, I, I feel like I had to get them out of my system. And uh, I mean, I still love them, but yeah, yeah. It's so funny because it's like, it's like everyone I know that has gotten into like photography with like, like photographing whales. It's like once they get their first taste of killer whales, it's like, that's like all they want is killer whales. Like they'll go here, then they go up to San Juan Island. They spend spring here, San Juan Island summers, and they go back and forth and they're just hunting these killer whale shots. But um, it's funny. My favorite whale now is a humpback. And it's like, I don't know if it's because killer whales could be a pain in the butt, but I definitely <laughs> just love humpback whales now. Um, but it's you definitely have to go through a killer whale stage. And there's nothing like 
the feeling you get when you are with killer whales like you there's definitely a feeling that is like the power you can feel it in the air when they're around but yeah, totally. Just, yeah. I mean that they're, they're so photogenic and just sexy and smart yeah. and it's right. And, and also I'm the transients versus the residents, they have such a different feeling. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it is true. Yeah. But I'm, I'm glad you've, uh, moved over to team humpback too. <laughs> so, yeah. They just do so much. They, you oh, know, yeah. humpbacks are just- yeah. Yeah. Characters. They are. They are. I mean, I feel like they've got to be everybody's favorite whale ultimately. I mean, they're so close into shore. They're so acrobatic. They sing, they're flexible, they're resilient. They're, they're just, they're so resourceful. They defend other species. I mean, they're just, there is so much to, to love about them and they make themselves available to us. It's uh, yeah. Yeah. They're so cool. They are. So how did how did you start getting this Mexico project with humpback whales going? Um, it's been going for almost 10 years now, right? Yeah, it's going to be yeah. our 10th year this year. Um, so it was this beautiful confluence of everything that I love and everything I care about and am good at all coming together to make this project, the Whales of Guerrero. Um, So what happened was it was 2013 and I had gotten married down there to an American man in 2011. And I feel like that when I got married there in 2011 on the beach and I promised for richer, for poor and sickness and health till death do us part, like I married the beach and I married the community. Uh, <laughs> um, unfortunately, the marriage didn't last, but the project did. And um, that what happened is I got married there and I had been going there for 10 years before that, at least. And I guess, let's see, I went there in 97 for the first time. So gosh, I'm not a mathematician. What is that? 13, 14 years. And um, I invited my friends who were local to come to the wedding. I'd gone fishing with them a lot. And I knew it was a really fishy place. It was the kind of place that fish would whack against your legs and the surf, and you could just drop a hand line and pull up a red snapper and drop a line and pull up a red snapper. I always saw dolphins and um, in the winter, I always saw humpbacks. And so um, when it was 2013, I was kind of, I kind of outgrown doing my, my communications and web stuff. And I was casting about for what to do. And when I got married down there, I noticed that the community really benefited from me bringing 80 people from around the world to this place. And my friends down there, I had seen them go um, better and better and then go through this economic slump when swine flu hit and, or it was bird flu came and there was some cartel violence and people got really freaked out by it. So tourism crashed and my friends were suffering. And I noticed the fishery was suffering too. It had been overfished and um, like we just weren't catching the fish that we used to. So I thought, well, that felt really good to help my friends. They came down and they drank beer and ate guacamole and my friends were able to buy school supplies for their kids and fix their roofs uh, with that money. And that felt like the best wedding present ever. So why not do something 
to try and help. And I knew there were humpback whales there and there was no tourism around ecotourism. There were fishing. It was a really great place to go pelagic fishing. Uh, so it was very common to go by the dumpster outside of Zihuatanejo by the pier and see dozens of sailfish and uh, just, just there in the dumpster after having had their picture taken and nobody even ate them. Mm -hmm. And after all of those years of fishing the big fish out, they're just, there, there wasn't anything left. And so I thought, well, we could start ecotourism, but having traveled around the world doing whale watching, I'd seen the good and the bad that whale watching can do. Mm -hmm. And I knew that the way good whale watching works in a sustainable way is when the community is in charge and when they're really invested in the long-term health of the sea because they benefit. It's a part of their identity that they're, they take care of the ocean. This is who we are. These are our whales. We are the ocean. We are earth. We help each other. Let's do this together. And I'd been so inspired by that in Kaikoura, New Zealand. I'd been inspired by that in, um, in San Ignacio Lagoon. And I had seen bad examples. So we didn't know how many whales there were or what kind of marine mammal species were in Guerrero. And that totally surprised me because I mean, I've been in like San Juan Island and Hawaii and Monterey and all these like whale intensive places. So I thought there was like one researcher per whale around the world, you know, <laughs> especially with all the orca stuff. And so then to realize there's like an entire state in Mexico where no one has ever done any research about the marine mammals was amazing to me. And um, so I thought, well, why don't we find out what's here and start building something together where I can use my science communication background to get people connected with the ocean and do really public open science, like the way you do at the Exploratorium, where you show them a phenomena and you say, hey, try this. And someone does it and they go, that's weird. And then the exhibit says, what's going on? And then the exhibit explains what's going on. And then you go, huh, and you feel more connected to the natural world. So I did that with this whale stuff. Um, and I did a research project. I, I raised some funds just by begging everyone I knew for money and asking them to ask everyone they knew for money. And in 2014, I raised $20,000 and I went down there. I had already like tricked John Callum Bakidis into talking to me from my zine. <laughs> and so he shared with me his, um, his splash survey analysis data yeah. I think he yeah. felt kind of sorry for me and like, well, it won't cost me anything to share with you information and you will see if you last. I'm sure there's lots of people like that. Um, so I just took the data that the, the how to collect down there and I learned how to use a digital camera and I hired a local captain and we started going out and we collected 300 hours of data that first year. And I decided we're going to do this for five years because there's going to be up years and down years, depending on temperature, prey availability in the north and calving cycles and so forth. So let's give this five years and that'll give us an, an idea of where are these whales coming from? Where are they going? Are they living here or are they just passing through? Um, what's Guerrero to the whales? And so that's how it started. That's awesome. That's so, so cool. 
you originally started just really small group, right? Like one main captain and then you, and then as I'm assuming as it's grown, it's now a lot of the locals are pretty involved, right? Yeah. Um, so the first guy I hired, his name is Arturo and I hired him because he was the one that was nice enough to help the turtle people when they had a turtle, there's a lot, there's four different species of sea turtles there. And, um, there's was one person that was taking care of them. And when there would be an entangled turtle that they needed to release, they would call him and he would take them out and let the turtle free. And so he cared a tiny bit about nature and he helped with the bird count. So this was like this nature guy that answered the phone. So I hired him. We barely knew each other and my Spanish was pretty poor. Um, and I got so excited when I would see a whale that I could barely take its pictures. I got like 24 flukes that year. And it's not, there's not that many whales there, but um, it was, it was a real, now we get about a hundred flukes a year. So, but I would just get so excited that I would practically drop the camera. Um, but I invited the kids to come on the boat and I invited the captains and the way I got them to come on board was by playing uh, by the hydrophone. Mm. So, so no one knew down there that whales were mammals and they didn't know that they sing. Um, they didn't know um, like that the moms have babies that they care for as individuals and feed them milk, these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So the captains who were also divers, um, they had heard whale songs uh, in the night when they would be diving and it freaked them out. They, they didn't like it. Um, so there was a little bit of fear around whales. So I would say, hey, you want to go and hear whales sing from the boat? And they would come out and we would listen uh, to the whales sing. And by the end of that first season, the kids in the village are riding their bikes around the village, singing whale songs on their bikes. <laughs> and, and I know, so and, and, and there were these, um, there, I put a big map in a calendar in the middle of the village. It's like three streets by three streets. And it was just right in the middle, right on the kindergarten. And uh, people would go up and sort of look at this calendar where I would write how many whales we saw and where we saw them. And every time I got some good pictures or something, I would um, invite the village to come and I would project video that I saw onto the village wall. There was just this white wall and I would project it. And people started coming just a few the first year with their like Corona plastic beach chairs, you know, and we would like nerd out on whale stuff. Um, so that's how it started. And I told the village when I started, like, I, you guys, I care about you a lot. And I can see that the fishery is not doing well and tourism isn't going great. And did you know that there's places in the world where people will pay money to go see whales? And there are places in the world where the captains have such a good relationship with whales that they will like relax and sleep around your boat. And the captains are famous for their friendships with these whales. And they thought that was weird. Um, <laughs> but it, they, they said, okay, so if you wanna help, um, what you should do is you should focus on the kids and you, could, you should focus on the young people. And don't worry about the old fishermen. They're just, they're not gonna change. Just focus on the young ones that are starting out in life and focus on the kids if you wanna make a difference. And so even though I'm not a big kid person, um, I just was like, okay. And so I focused on the young fisher captains and I made a 
workshop every Wednesday at the tiny village library, which is just like a musty old room. And um, we would like play whale, you know, and just <laughs> do what we could. So that was the first year. And then the second year, I hired a really, really great educator named Andrea. And she had just graduated from UNAM in Mexico City and just loves teaching, loves connecting people with whales. And she's a very, very good spotter. And so the second year I hired her and a couple of foreign people from Europe to work with me um, and realized that it was best to hire all local people. And uh, there was just, it was just easier and better. So then after that, Andrea stayed with me and I began committing to hiring and training local people who didn't have science degrees, but teaching them skills and hiring early career Mexican scientists to come and work on the team. And the biggest priority was they had to have good communication skills and good empathy mm -hmm. and like really get it that the yeah. priority was about connecting with people because if we created a culture where people put whale safety first, the rest would follow. But if yeah. we did super great science and collected the data and didn't share it in real time and let the ask the community to drive in and participate and show them the benefits along the way, um, we would just see things get worse. And we weren't finding there were that many whales. There were, we would find like one whale every three hours. So, you know, you have to work for it down there. Um, and we see dolphins like, well, this year we didn't, but we used to see them about 85% of the time. Um, so there's, and we see turtles almost every day and we have really interesting rays um, and, and uh, mobulas. So you can get out there and see some really cool stuff, uh, but we can't say you're gonna see a whale or you get your money back or anything mm -hmm. like that. So yeah. it's this really like fragile thing, you know, cause like you can't have everybody getting on top of one whale there. Yeah. Mm. So, so is, oh, oh, go ahead, Slater. Is there a whale watch company there now? Yeah, there's a lot actually. Um, okay. So if we fast forward to today, um, well in 2021, by that time, so you go forward and at that, so we move forward and now we started doing uh, training programs the year I started. And then every year after that, we did a two day training program. And so I would invite captains to come and with my educating team, we would do a one full day of Safe Whale Watch talking, practicing biology, very intensive class course for eight hours. And then the next day we would go to sea and we would go out and practice. And uh, so we get like, there were, were two big boats and we would we'd go out on a big boat or on a whole bunch of pongas and split up and get out there and be around whales and watch each other and practice distances and make sure no one was closer than 60, 60 meters to a whale. That's the Mexican law um, if you're authorized. And, you know, being at sea, it's, it's the distance is difficult. So mm -hmm. practicing that distance, just using boat to boat to say, how far are you now? How far are you now? Okay, now this boat be the whale, this boat be the following boat. And so we did a lot of practice out there and the practice was great. Um, and uh, it grew to be about 75 captains that attended oh, the wow. trainings over time. So it's pretty big. But the real cool thing that happened is by doing this training, 
um, the captains got very united and um, we had a great time doing the course. I think it's super important to be fun and to ask the community what they want to learn and what they want to work on and then to meet up and have pizza and beer available and 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 just be around to, to be that kind of person that makes the space for people to come together and talk about what's going on. Um, so we became that to this community. So last year, um, there were 50 authorized boats. Um, and, and this includes not just my little village, Barra de Potosi. This includes Iwatanejo, Ixtapa, Troncones. And so um, we worked as a group of captains for, um, I guess we started in 2018 asking, we decided, we did a, um, a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats of what it would look like if we became a federally authorized whale watch area, which we were not. And um, after analyzing it, decided to request that for our region, um, which would give us federal protection and support, but it would also be a greater impact on the whales. But the community of whale watchers decided to do that with us. And so when we submitted our five-year study, it was signed by 50 captains who were like, we want this, this is who we're, what we're doing. And so before we became an authorized group, we were already acting as if we were an authorized site. And um, then the city and the government kind of followed us. And so in 2021, the city designated that year to be the year of the whale. And they made wow. all this really cool recycled art. And so now there's like murals and sculptures all over the city of whales and um, made out of like recycled bottle caps and cool stuff like that. So um, now it's sort of a known thing. And it's, it's uh, when you go to the airport, when you're waiting in customs line, you see a picture of a humpback whale and you can click the QR code and it shows you a video of Arturo taking people whale watching and playing whale songs. And um, so, but it all goes through the, um, the, the channel of going with authorized whale guides and these guys. So it's kind of like the cool thing. And so uh, by making this community backed whale project uh, and them collecting the science. Like Arturo is a co-author on science publications that I've presented at, mm -hmm. at, at these conferences and things that we go to. And he comes to some of the science conferences. He doesn't speak English, but he comes to the Mexican marine mammal science ones and presents the data. And now he's the guy that people want to know. I mean, he's the one that was out there more than anyone, even though we collected data with a lot of different guys. Um, he's the one that has accrued the most hours. So um, yeah, and so he's very, very proud of um, who he is. And he has seen what it looks like to see whales get harassed and not harassed. And he's felt the flattery of when a mom comes and rests by your boat with her calf and just how good that feels. And uh, to, to have that trust and to have a whale approach your boat and to, you know, when it's, it's relaxed. And uh and so that's been really, really cool that the, the identity and the culture of the captains in our area is that they want to be good with the whales. It's not like, yeah. So, and that's something that really happened organically over time by the community driving this and owning this project along with us. That's incredible. That's so cool. So when you become like a federally recognized like whale tour area does that mean there's like a permitting system 
for boats yep, and stuff? That does. Uh-huh. And so um, what that means is that the guys who want to be an authorized whale watch boat, their boat has to have been inspected and, and go with a certain number of safety criteria. Um, and they also have to have attended a, a safe whale watch course every year. And um, so that's kind of our way to continue to stay connected with the process, even though it's now in the hands of the government, is that we do that side of it. Um, and then every year the guides start a new WhatsApp group that's about um, who's an authorized guide. And then they give each other um, insights about who's with the whales but and where the whales are and also um, to keep it from being too many people with the whale at the same time. And when there's an unauthorized boat, um, they will talk to them. They, we always, we go through about 500 handouts a year of like the, the, that this is a safe whale watch area and these are the rules and it's a nursery and the whales are big, but they're vulnerable. And the guides really appreciate and ask for having this information to hand out to be that point of contact for people who may not know um, that the laws are in place. So yeah, and so once you get the authorization, if you're in a little boat like a ponga, then you can get uh, 60 feet uh, away from the whale. But if you're not authorized, you have to stay 200 or not feet meters. Um, if you're not authorized, you have to stay 240 meters away. So oh, wow. yeah, it's far. And um, no matter who you are, you have to stay um, no longer than 30 minutes near the whale. And um, there can only be a certain number of boats with the whale at any given time. Um, and then there's other things to practice around, you know, not going face to face with the whale and, you know, the angle of approach and speeds and speed changes and so forth. Nice. That's really cool. What a community. Yeah, yeah it's pretty cool. We're um, now we're beginning to communicate with communities in Oaxaca and Central America and in um, South America as well about um, what we're doing. And I feel super lucky that we got to do this together and start from the ground up because I think it's so much easier uh, when you uh, then than to try and fix a broken dynamic, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And for us, like the obvious way to support ourselves financially would have been to be a whale watch company ourselves. But we did expeditions where we'll take like 12 people a year for one week a year out on the boat with us. But besides that, um, Whales of Guerrero doesn't do whale watching. Uh, we, we support the other guys. So we're not the competition. And so that kind of helps also to uh, keep everybody in communication. So do you, do you guys still do the expedition thing? I kind of remember when that was going on that people could come like volunteer and then they had to cover like some of the expenses of the accommodations and stuff like that to be down there. And was that kind of like a funding source for a while? It was for a while. We had it for, um, we're not doing it this year, uh, but we have had it every year except for this year. So we'll, we'll have them on again in 2023. Um, so this year uh, we're gonna focus on uh, just getting our infrastructure stronger around education. And the other thing I'm really focused on right now is um, I wanna do a three-year land-based study where we identify along a 75 mile stretch of coastline where mom calf pairs are uh, nursing and resting and potentially giving birth and what boat traffic looks like in those areas and where they're most vulnerable. So of course, it's gonna take a few years to get um, some data that's robust. Mm -hmm. And we can't, um, that's just 
people are not going to want to pay money to come down and stand on a freaking lighthouse for days. I mean, I've done that job and <laughs> it is hard. It is yeah. a hard job. So um, my goal this year, we, we uh, piloted it last year. And my goal is to have six sites up and running along this whole stretch this year. And I want to bring in um, Mexican students who just graduated from college to do their social service work. And um, I'm really committed to paying um, as much as I can to, I don't, I don't do um, pay to play internships and I, um, I pay local people and I pay my team. Uh, so this year I'm focused on um, hiring a, a crew of young Mexican scientists and um, and uh, young recent graduates to come and get this going. So I think that's gonna probably take it out of me. Um, yeah. So we'll do that and we'll do, um, we do a really fun now uh, greeting ceremony for the whales and closing ceremony where we've got a guitarist, uh, Gabriela Quintero. She's from the band Rodrigo y Gabriela and she adopted a whale of ours. She lives down there and wrote a song about it. It's called Motitas. And Motitas is, means polka dots. You see Motitas around Monterey. Motitas is around really? this year. Yeah, yeah. Look, yeah. look up Motitas, know. yeah, yeah. She's <laughs> got polka dots all over and she has a calf this year. Um, but yeah, I've been getting, I got sightings about her every few days in July. So um, yeah, but I saw her on a boat with Gabby down in Mexico in like 2015 and then she adopted it and wrote this song and now she's doing the neatest thing where she's like one of the greatest guitar players in the world and she writes this this song Motitas that started as a single song and it feels like a whale in a way the song changes every year like a whale song changes mm -hmm. so some of the themes from the year before but it changes thematically a little bit every year just like the whale song does and uh, we bring musicians from around the world and do this uh, beautiful welcome ceremony for the whales. And then we do a big closing party to kind of close it out, celebrate and end the season and say, okay, that's it. No more whale watching, says <laughs> the last of the whales straggle out and really need a break. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah, so nowadays to go whale watching in our area, the thing to do is to like go to our website, whalesinmexico.com and then look for the guides. And then um, there's an option to ask one of us to hop aboard. And then um, I'll send myself or one of the team members out if they need a bilingual translator to be a naturalist like you and uh, to spend the day on the boat with them. And uh, oh, cool. that allows us to collect data opportunistically, get spend time with the captain supporting them. And also the money goes to the captain beyond the, you know, the $50 naturalist fee for us. So that's all we're nice. doing this year. And then hopefully we'll have a nice full expedition the next year. So you're, you are also a Nat Geo Explorer. So are they like helping the whole project or how does that work? No, um, so to be a National Geographic Explorer means that you've received some grants from National Geographic and you're basically mm -hmm. a part of their club. And uh -huh. so they don't pay ongoing salary, but when you're an explorer, then you're eligible to apply for small grants and larger ones. Mm -hmm. uh, so this last year, I received a grant from them to take 50 women out to sea, which was oh, cool. so freaking fun. As my favorite thing these days is supporting the women in the village. They become like you can see 
on the wall behind me some of the art that the women have done and um, they're getting really, really good. And uh, they had like made all this cool art about whales and I realized that you can see some of them have orca fever too, huh? <laughs> killer whales behind us and there's not, there's like one killer whale sighting a year where we live. Um, but yeah, they, um, they, they do this big art fair and now some of them have become tour guides um, in their own right. And it's walking tour guides. But when I found out that most of them had never been on a boat, even though their husbands were fishermen and they hadn't seen a whale in real life, I was like, oh, I got to fix this. So, because I think if you want to change a culture, you have to start with the women too. I mean, so um, it's felt really good for me to find ways to support the women. And um ask them, how can we help you and, and um, share marketing development skills and how to become your own business. And now the women are doing cooking classes and walking tours and selling art. And they're sending their kids to summer camps and um, whole families are really proud that like some of these women, their kids are becoming biologists. Like there's never been college graduates in our, in our village before and now some of them are in school studying biology because of sort of hanging out around the office with us and us making science cool and showing them like men and women can go and you can do this thing where you get to go and you know you spend most of your life sitting in front of a computer and scrapping for funds but you also get to see the best stuff right yeah ah, whales are amazing they are they really they are, are. They, yeah. they like just easily have such an impact on like mm -hmm. all of us yeah um, so you see you see humpbacks there and you said you see dolphins there have you in your years there have you seen any other marine mammals oh yeah uh-huh so we saw i'll tell you the fun the the i think my most exciting recent sighting was we saw the first sperm whale ever in guerrero Oh, really? um, uh, yeah, um, it, it was um, the last day of the season and we, we, there's this place you go out to sea about 15 miles and the water just abruptly changes color. And every time we go out there, we see some, a new to us species, some weird beaked whale or um, a whole bunch of Brutus whales or a massive group of spinner dolphins, common dolphin, risos. Um, things that I'm sure you guys in Monterey are like, yeah, yeah. But to us, it's very, very exciting. It's still pretty cool. So, yeah. And like in 2016, we had an El Nino year. And so there were like no whales. And so we were desperate to find something and to see what was happening. So we would go out to sea far out and we kept just finding all kinds of Xiphias and um, interesting animals way out there. And close in, um, what we have that I think I love the most is the rough-toothed dolphins. So we have a very consistent population of rough-toothed dolphins that one of my team members, Victoria Pui-Santolu, has um, led studying for since 2015. Uh, so she's been doing a, a fin catalog of them and has gotten to know them as individuals. And I think oh, she's cool. got 120 individuals. And um, you may have you know Eric Ramos. Um, he he's a really good drone pilot, among other things. And he did some cool drone work that got us some videos of rough-toothed dolphins sharing a fish while having sex and like handing the fish back and forth and having sex and you know dolphins, right? Yeah. So <laughs> and exactly. um, yeah, and we got these um, really fun um, rough-toothed dolphin interactions with humpbacks and um, so. 
the rough tooth dolphin stuff. I mean, they're like the border collies of the dolphin world, you know? Yeah, they're a little, they're a little funky looking. I definitely, I want to see them in person. I've never hey, seen them yeah. in person before. They're, like they're so nose or something. They're so smart. Like bottlenoses are like Labradors, but rough tooth dolphins, they're, they're freaking steady in us. Like they, they look at us, they'll like turn one eye, look at us, go back down, probably take a note down there underwater, come back up, <laughs> take another recording, go back down, go do some more work and maybe have a conference about these people up there. But they're just, um, I mean, they, they just do such interesting things, the way that they fish and the way that they share, the way they interact with each other and with other marine mammals is, is totally captivating. And um, they're, they're the worst fish stealers. I mean, so they're the, the biggest culprits in stealing fish from fishermen. Mm-hmm. And um, they're the ones that were getting themselves in trouble all the time out offshore in the nets as they would sort of jump over the net in and jump over the net out because they're really cocky. And um, they just feel like they, 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 they look like they're beached a lot of the time when they're picking fish out of set nets on shore. Um, so they're really amazing. And I always get super excited when I'm around them and they're very synchronous in how they swim. Uh, so they're, they're awesome. And then we've got real consistent spotted dolphins, pantropical spotted dolphins. Our bottlenose dolphins have been declining and I'm super grateful that we've been there to study them because we used to see them maybe two times a week in 2014. And this year we did about 200 hours of data collection and we saw them three times. And um, a few years ago, we saw that they had a disease called lobomycosis, uh, where it's kind of like grayscale if you watch mm-hmm. thrones and it's contagious to humans from dolphins. Um, so we saw that the dolphins were just covered with this um, nasty looking rash and they're so skinny where we are. They're, um, their ribs are, they, they've got a big caves in their heads and the ribs are mm-hmm. out. So. Um, yeah, so, so I'm glad we've been there to collect the data, at least, you know, to know that here are these animals that are, they cling to the coast, they prefer the coral areas to feed. Um, when we were out at a lighthouse doing work a few years ago for, for a whole season, we saw dolphins there every day. We, we haven't seen a dolphin there in a few years now. Um, so getting this information has been really, really helpful because that indicates there's something up, right? I mean, with yeah. pollution and with the fishery. And so um, using that data to show something about the canary as the canary in the coal mine has been really helpful. So, yeah. So does most of your research, um, I mean, you guys are big supporters and users of Happy Whale. John mm-hmm. Kalanicki is from Cascadia right. on your scientific advisory yep. group. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh, so- yeah. I'm assuming a lot of it also goes to inform the Mexican government for management stuff. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so, yeah. So Ted and I at Happy Whale, we partner on our whale adoption program. And that's um, a big way that he and I are both able to keep our programs going, um, which is super awesome. And um, yeah, Happy Whale, man. <laughs> so amazing that I just can't believe the instantaneous nature of fluke mm-hmm. identification at this point. It's mind blowing. Um, but yeah, so we, we, we give our data to about 50 different research institutions at, um, 
We share with UNAM and um, um, uh, UABS, which is in La Paz, and then with Universidad de Colima and with Oaxaca. So we have this whole network of researchers up and down the Mexican coastline that we partner with. And then yep, with Cascadia, and then we work with NOAA and the uh, Southwest Fisheries um, to also just share what we have as mm -hmm. I'm one person, you know, and I have a team that works with me as educators and scientists, but um, the idea is to get this data collected, written up and share it out and then make it accessible. Um, mm -hmm. the, the stuff that we've collected down in Guerrero has contributed to the understanding of humpback whales as a um, our whales in Guerrero, we now know are much more aligned with the Central America group of whales, of which there yeah. are 400 individuals than the mainland Mexico whales. And so given that, um, it's a pretty tiny little group um, that does come to this area. And we know based on reciting rates and IDs and um, just the, the rate of mom-calf pairs that we see, that they are nursing and calving there. And um, well, we can't, I've, we've seen enough whales with tiny, with fetal folds and tiny, tiny, tiny whales with bent dorsal fins that I, you know, I would say that at least some of these whales are being born there and many of them are less than a month old. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's been um, pretty important as the, the data that we collected there then contributed to California's decision to not do crab fishing during the summertime. Um, as they yeah. realize like, oh, okay, these Guerrero whales are part of this population and they're coming to you in Monterey and they're an endangered group. So um, this kind of data that we get out there and collect and then we share it is, um, is definitely contributing to a bigger global picture and understanding of what the North Pacific whales are. Yeah. Yeah. You were one of the first people that I ever heard say, we have whales in common. And now I use that all the time. Uh, you're like, you know, these are whales down here. And we were giving a talk in San Francisco and you're like, we have whales in common to the audience. And I was like, oh, that's really good. Right. <laughs> that makes me feel proud. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing to me to think back full circle to back in 1997 when I hadn't seen a whale and just, they were just this idea to me and I had to go see one. And I was dreaming about swimming under the Golden Gate Bridge in Wales in this dream. And today you can see freaking humpback whales swimming underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. And they are the same whales that we see down in Guerrero. I mean, that blew my mind when the first we made our first match. And I was down in Guerrero. And I think the second whale I ever saw, Fran, you must know Fran. Yes, yes. As a baby. She, she's... Oh man, she she just loves that camera, doesn't she? Yes. <laughs> yeah, she's the first whale I learned here. Like that first whale. She's not the first whale I saw in Monterey, but she's the first one I did. Oh yeah. wow! Yeah. Wow! Wow! And and we were the first people to take a picture of her calf because we thought she was a fe a male, and I got a picture <laughs> of her with her calf in uh, 2014. Yeah, and yeah. that calf that calf never made it to California, but she has one this wow. year too. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. She's the second whale I ever ID'd. So we have that in common. Yeah. She's, she's so, yeah, but I just couldn't believe it when I took this picture and then I brought back my 24 measly IDs to Cascadia Research Collective before Happy Well was really going. And 
said, hey, John, here's my stuff. And then Alana Dobson and Kirsten Flynn did this analysis and said, okay, here's your matches. And, and Fran had like 42 sightings up there. And oh, yeah. the first time she'd been seen down there. And it just, I just couldn't believe it that that's even possible, that we can all be out there taking pictures of whales and, and connect them across thousands of miles. I mean, yeah, it's pretty awesome. It really is. It really is. So with the NOAA technical memorandum that just came out, um, we talked about it in a previous episode, not that long ago. So your whales really more fall into that South mainland Mexico, Central American designation, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we don't know where the boundary is. I mean, boundaries always kind of make me laugh because they're whales, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but the the because the group of Central America whales is smaller, we have a higher quantity of whales that rematch to um, whales around Monterey and in um, um, Northern California. But um, by percentage, uh, we have a higher rate of matches to Southern California, and so that combined with the genetics, um, we're finding also. Um, I'm just working on a, a, a note right now about that. And um, our genetics definitely conform much more closely to the uh, Central America whale haplotype than to the mainland Mexico one. But that said, there's a lot of interchange and um, mm -hmm. there's a lot of work to do. And then there's always those fun globetrotter whales, right? Like yeah. uh, we published with Jim Darling a, pic, uh, a paper this year. Yes. Did you see that? It was. Yeah, we talked about that one too in the Hawaiian oh, humpback cool. episode. Yeah, where they switched between places. Huh? Who did you talk to about that paper? We just read the paper and then presented it on the episode. We haven't talked, we didn't talk to Jim or anything, but yes, later and I were like totally nerding out about this. Oh, cool. Swam across the Pacific and oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Super and it was cool. so fast. What was it like 22 days or something? It was, yeah. yeah. It was like a month. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it just, and, and I always think about these song carrying whales, like call them, and it's just mm -hmm. an idea, but the question is, how does that song get carried from into Mexico and Hawaii so that they're singing that similar song at the end of the year that was so different in the beginning? And yeah, yeah I mean, some of it could be happening in the feeding grounds and in transition and transit. But I just love the idea of a, a single male whale tootling across the ocean, singing the tune of the year to itself, you know? Mm -hmm. and out there to the next breeding ground and dropping the hot new song of the season <laughs> and what do the whales think and uh i feel like this whale uh we call it flint uh could be that whale uh that is one of those those whales that is uh will not conform to yeah. any population segment and it's like oh no i go everywhere i go yeah. to places and you cannot tell me what to do yeah yeah i think we're gonna start seeing that more and more Oh, yeah. totally. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I mean, the challenge is then we can't because of protection laws say, oh, whales are panmictic, right? I mean, that they go everywhere uh, because they do have their tendencies. Like mm -hmm. they're so regular, some of them, like they, we have recites every year. They come back within like a week of the year before. And it's like, oh, well, we always go to Guerrero the second week of February. And mm -hmm. like, that's, you know, when we have our condo rented or something like that. So I just um, really noticed that about the whales, but then they also do kind of go all over the place and humpbacks. I mean, they're so flexible compared to 
uh, gray whales, you know, the yeah. feeding techniques and the way they transmit information and, and change and change and change, unlike so many of the others. Yeah. So bottlenose, a whale that we met the, her calf this year. Yeah, I just okay, brought, I just pulled her up because I was yeah. thinking the same I, thing. Look, has a calf now. Oh, that's yeah. so, cool. so her third one. Yeah. Cool oh, neat. She, she's been seen off of Cabo. Um, she's been seen with you and then El Salvador. So it's like, um, really cool. Yeah, she's got a tail that has a looks like a pig on part of it as well. Did you ever notice that? There's like a pig type pattern on one side of her lobe. And then the other side looks like a bottlenose. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. If you look yeah. at the, if that's a nose oh, yeah. on the right side, I see. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. Uh, I yeah. guess I see it as a bottlenose too. Yeah. yeah I think that's what they uh, call the bottlenose, but I could see okay. uh -huh. sea lion, pig, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, or like a ferret. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> And I mean, the thing that I think about all the time is so for each of these whales that has a very distinct exclamation, you know, exclamation point and Batman or Corazon, he's called too, or Lexus, um, the ones that are super known for their very distinct uh, tail, there are so many that are just like category five, nothing, yeah. right? But yeah. they're doing, they're around too. We're just not noticing them. It's like seeing the guy with the blue mohawk all over town, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. And, but then everybody is showing up at that frequency. We just don't know to spot them. So yeah. And what to do with that information is, uh, I think about that all the time. Yeah. I talk, I talk about bottlenoses sighting history in the breeding grounds a lot when we see her. I mean, I just pull up happy whale on my phone and I like pull up the whales info and read it off. Um, but yeah, it's like, did she stop in Cabo like one time and get her photo taken? But really, she likes being down in South Mexico and Central America somewhere. Or does she switch? I mean, who knows? Yeah, uh -huh. I mean, that is a big question. And I mean, and, and do females do it differently than males? I mean, mm -hmm. we think that females only came every two or three years, but that might not be the case for finding now. And mm -hmm. so this is more information that we're going to have to figure out. For sure. Yeah. Well, it's so wow. exciting. So cool. Yeah. Well, um, I guess I just, um, to wrap up kind of like the publication and research side of things, are there um, any other publications that have come out recently that you wanted to share with people other than that memo kind of helping define, you know, who's who of the U.S. West Coast humpbacks, where they're coming from? Do you guys have any uh, other stuff yeah. that's new? are about to come out. I guess you things that you can download. Oh gosh, I should be more up on this. Um, I've got this just a, a really stuffed pipeline right now. So yeah. this question in a year and I'll be like, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, I know you said um, you're writing a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'm, it's, uh, it's been really satisfying to finally be getting um, a lot of these bigger stories out. Um, so I just published something with, as co-author with Christian Ortega Ortiz. Um, He'd be fun to talk to for you guys too. Um, he's at Colima and we yeah. are, we're really into our false killer whales. And um, so we're starting to do some work on the ecology of false killer whales in Mexico. Um, so that just came out. Um, what else just came out? Um, mentioned the food sharing one with Eric Ramos, the food sharing among uh, rough tooth dolphins was really fun. Um, and then the Jim Darling one. Um, and then, yeah, John and I are working on 
a paper that will be, I'm excited for you to read. Uh, we have to get it written up. I presented it as a talk at SMM and oh, it cool. was about the migratory tendencies of Guerrero whales to uh, California. And so really uh, getting more into the details of what the, um, what, what the patterns are and that we see more of them in Central America or Central California and um, Middle California around Monterey. Um, I mean, we do of course get some in Northern California, Oregon and Washington, but there's a very strong cutoff, uh, relatively speaking, compared to um, anything that you're gonna see from Banderas Bay or Baja. So, mm -hmm. yeah. so yeah, and one thing I'd love to do at some point would be to do an analysis of the scar, the rake marks on our tails. Cause the, the rake marks of the whales from Banderas Bay, I've heard that like up to a third of them have rake marks from surviving killer whale attacks. Whereas ours, that percentage is far lower. And I haven't done the analysis, but I think that could say something about where our whales migrate. And um, yeah. because um, they're not all getting attacked right in Banderas Bay something's happening to them along the way. So mm -hmm. where are Guerrero and Central America whales going compared to whales um, from Banderas Bay is something to think about. And yeah. cookie cutter shark marks is another one. I mean, the whales that like um, Flint, this Hawaii whale, it had cookie cutter shark marks and we don't have yeah. cookie cutter sharks in, in Mexico where I am. And so- yeah. That's happening in Hawaii. And yeah, so they have in Hawaii, a lot of them are, it's like, they look like polka dots. Yeah. And yeah. so that would be so fun to look at the bodies of our whales and uh, see which ones um, have cookie cutter shark marks and then dial down into their sighting history. And as more and more data gets uploaded to Happy Whale, these are the kinds of things that can get, um, become very quickly ascertained compared to prior years. So, I mean, that would have taken someone five years to do before. And now it's so much easier. It's mind-blowing. Yeah. yeah. I like uh, Flint's pattern on happy whale to triangle. Yeah, yeah. Not and very you know, many whales have that. <laughs> it's beautiful too, because Jim lives up in Tofino um, when he's not in Hawaii. And so um, so that whale has been to where he is in Vancouver Island and it's been to um, him, his group in Hawaii and then down to us in Guerrero. So, and the thing that really got us talking about it was Beth Goodwin and I um, had a conversation about this whale as she had made the um, self-driving little um, aquatic vehicle that went from Hawaii to the Islas Revilla Quiqueros with a hydro oh, yeah. And, and yeah. heard that there were whales singing in the middle of the ocean between the Islas Rivia Hikados and Hawaii. And that was not something we expected. So then this whale swimming back the other way further strengthened that, um, that idea. But yeah, Beth and I got really excited when, uh, because of this sighting, because of that work that she'd done before. One well, Clinton eight catalogs. He's in eight different research groups catalogs. He's a That's awesome guy. Yeah. Tasley Shaw has seen him. I, I yeah. know Toby has seen him. Wow. We need to get a boat and go straight across and follow that route. And see I know, happens. right? Oh, we're, yeah. We're yeah. in. If you need someone crazy oh to go with you, we're That's in. That's such a dream for me to, yeah. <laughs> and, and just to be with them like that in that, in that way would be incredible it's for sure. Cabo to Maui. I'm in. 
Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. The, oh, wow. That would just be incredible. Yeah. I don't even care if we go real slow so that we actually spot things. I'll, I'll go at a whale's pace. I will literally follow the whale. <laughs> all yeah, the way. yeah, that's what I want. And like a sailboat <laughs> or something that doesn't make any noise so we don't have to bother them, you know, and we can just- Well, like, and then we don't have to worry about fuel either if we could just sail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I like what um, Diane Gendron's doing up with the blue whales in, in, uh, in Loretto. Do you follow her at all? Uh-uh. Oh, she's amazing. So she's been doing blue whale research for like 25 years in Loreto in Baja. She's a hero of mine. She's so cool. And um, so she has a sailboat and she studies the blue whales on her sailboat. And because of the way blue whales are, um, she, she, you can't like go chasing after them in a sailboat. And she figured out that they feed in a spiral. And mm. so she would just kind of park her boat and let the whale come by her and get to know it. And uh, started this whole way of studying uh, whales very passively. And she also works with very local guys and um, does the same model that I do. And um, that gets people very, very, to be very lovely with the blue whales up there. So um, there's cool. me, it's my very, very favorite place to be with blue whales is uh, in a little conga or in a sailboat in Loreto Sea, where it's just so calm and there's yeah. a single whale and it just, it flukes, goes down, comes up a half a mile over there and uh, you find it by sound. It's it's beautiful by the sound of its blow. Yeah, oh, it's, also, so cool. it's also cool because it's blue whale meets desert. I've been there and it's, it's just like blue whale fluking up with like desert mountains is like, it's just not, we see blue whales here, you know, and it's just very like open ocean or, I don't know, the bay, but yeah, it's astonishing. They seem smaller in Monterey. I don't know why, but yeah, they probably are. Honestly, I feel like, I feel like when I was, well, honestly, we're on bigger boats most of the time in Monterey. So that honestly could be it too. Yeah. I mean, I remember I was around hundreds of blue whales in the Channel Islands one time. And for me, it was more powerful to see a single blue whale in a ponga than it was to see hundreds. I mean, of course it was epic, of course. And I would never let go of that memory, but yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah. So do you have any future goals with your project? Um, well, uh, we want a reason of money so we can survive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's always that. Um, and then uh, when we have the money to survive, what our goals are right now are we want to create a community run and driven and backed whale sanctuary for mom mm-hmm. calf pairs. And so the idea is to collect all the data around where whales are nesting, uh, nesting, where they're resting and nursing <laughs> in our area. Same, same. Uh, and yeah, kind of, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and partner with the community, just like we did in the original study to say, okay, so we have whales and not that many, and here's where there's lots of boats and here's where there's intensive fishing. And here's where we've seen the most mom calf pairs. And so where are they most vulnerable? Where can we give the whales some space? Where do we need to be? What do you want to do? And then um, do this, like collect the data, share it in real time, present it along the way. And I don't present it, the community presents it. And I teach people how to present. And, and um, most, of the, most of the decisions don't happen during those presentations anyway. I mean, they yeah. happen in a hammock over a beer, you know? Yeah. Like, they happen in the standing in the street and just being available to listen and uh, being a good participant in the community. 
So um, I, I think that in three years, the goal is to create a, a sanctuary for mom calf cares. And if we can create that, I will be so proud of my community. And because uh, that's, that's something. And I'd love to see my project being run by um, Mexican marine mammal scientists and educators. Um, and eventually in a way, I mean, I never want to leave. I love what I do, but if it can be something that can live without me, then that's something that I will feel um, I've done a good job. <laughs> so, um, I mean, of course I wanna get these big papers published and that's um, been a monkey on my back for a really long time. And I'm certainly hoping to get this guy, these, uh, this, this uh, paper, two different big papers out um, over the next year, plus that genetics note. Um, and I'd like to just keep on clarifying what the visions are um, of the, 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 the get that resolution improved about the humpback whale population by continuing to collect our data. And then some sort of pipe dreams I have that we don't have the bandwidth for would be, um, I'd love to do more offshore studies, maybe in a sailboat for that too, in terms of gas. Um, and I'd love to do some eDNA or environmental DNA study work. Um, and, and get clarity on what kind of beak whales are out there and what mm -hmm. other animals. And like last week, one of my captains called and was like, we just had five humpback whales pass through. It's August. There's not supposed yeah. to be five humpback whales there. Are they coming from the South? Are they yeah. going north? Yeah. Who knows? So doing some year round work as well as getting some eDNA um, data collected could be really cool to open up future studies. Um, and I really want to, share what we've learned about community-based and community-run um, conservation and science work with the world and keep sort of maintaining this model and being a reference point um, so that other communities and researchers around um, can, can come to me and not just to me, to, but to the whole community of people who have ever worked with us and use that as a model to uh, get that deeper connection going. Um, because we have collected really good data and it's contributed to the global picture of science, but it's also um, the way that we collected it was done in a way that it, I, nothing can be sure, but I think that the whales are gonna long-term be better off for us having done this research. And that's just not the case for so many other um, people that collect data. And I feel super proud of that and thankful for my time that I got to do collecting data as a volunteer for many different organizations and working at the Exploratorium and just listening and listening. And um, being a non-scientist, I think that um, I was able to come into it like, okay, um, I don't really know what I'm doing guys, but <laughs> I care about you and I care about whales and let's try and figure this thing out together. And then when I made mistakes, I could say like, oh, shoot, you know, we were wrong about this. And, and what does that look like? And how should we fix it? And um, letting the community decide along the way what the priorities are going to be instead of me saying, this is what we're going to do. And even though I think it would be the sexiest thing in the world to go offshore and hang out in the sailboat for three months, like maybe that's not the biggest interest of the community. So yeah, darn, right? <laughs> I'll do it for you. <laughs> yeah, okay come on down yeah yeah i mean we can talk about pelagic fishing tours maybe i don't know so they do this really neat fishing out there where they fish for tuna with a kite have you ever seen that yeah. yes yeah, yeah love that 
So yeah, that's, uh, I, I want to partner with those guys and just like <laughs> use digital cameras and, and collect <laughs> data and give them some eDNA kits and just be like, hey, if you see something weird, can you drop this hydrophone, record, take a picture, mark a waypoint yeah. and scoop up some water, you know? And yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll buy you a big old lunch and a six pack and yeah, like that would be very, very fun. Oh man, can you imagine if science was done that way? That'd be awesome. Well, it is being done that way. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. We should have everybody doing that though. That would be great. I know. Get paid in I beer. know. Yeah. People get so into it. It's just, I mean, the first time, the first year, me and Arturo were out there, and Arturo has like a seventh grade level education. He's a really smart guy. Uh, he just wasn't much for school. And we went out and every day we would drop that bloody hydrophone every half hour record. I was doing three minute recordings at the time. Now we record for one minute for presence, absence of sound and um, or of, of uh, vocalization of humpbacks. And uh, he's in charge of the hydrophone. He's in charge of data collection. He's the boat driver. And I always had him be in charge of acoustics. And uh, He's much better than me because I get all excited about things. And he's like, hey, it's time. <laughs> and he's the one that like makes it happen and fixes the hydrophone. And he's very rigorous. So we're out there. And after doing that many hundreds of times, uh, we hadn't heard singing in a couple of weeks. And he said, oh, OK, so we've been listening for whales every half hour since January. And now it's the end of March and we haven't heard singing. So before we didn't know when whales start and stop singing. And now because we have this, we can say the whales start and stop singing at this time because of what we just did. And I'm like, yes, science. <laughs> and he's in and I was in and, um, and he just doubled down on his, uh, his data collection. So that was really, really cool. Uh, so yeah, I think giving, giving, uh, community members ownership of the data and showing them why it matters and what impact their work has and that um, anybody can do it. You just, you, it, it takes some development of skills, but you can do it and there's a good reason to do it. And once you motivate people and give them that credit, um, it, it becomes great. And it's, it's affordable too, you know, um, like not going out on a big research ship and things like COVID happened and I fled home to Oregon. I mean, my, my dog's up here. So I'm like, ah, and I mean, I was still married then too. So my husband was here too, but yeah, I mean, I came home and it was like, oh no, now we're not going to collect data. But I mean, I didn't know, no one did that it was going to go on for a whole year, but the community collected data when I wasn't there and they kept it going completely perfectly without me because they had been trained. And so, so many people lost that um, when they were not living that way, but we were able to just keep it going, keep it going. And I mean, they also, they fixed the hydrophones. Like I had a community member build a hydrophone out of a Coca-Cola can and it works. It like they went to the market and they, they looked at a NOAA diagram that Jay Barlow did and um, they, they replicated it and they made wow. a microphone using a Coca-Cola can and some parts from like a radio and a microphone. So yeah. Oh, that's I, awesome. I know, I know. 
like every village in the world has some nerdy computer guy who's got like who hoards all of the old dead pieces of the piece the, ra- the radio guy the electronics guy yeah 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 yeah, yeah. that's a really important person to become friends with they give you free internet and they fix your computers and they do stuff they understand things so yeah Oh man. They're usually agoraphobic, so you gotta search them out. But yeah. also paying attention. So, you know, like get on your ham radio and see if you can find them. <laughs> you wanna ask your last one? No, I said you you're asking the last two. We'll cut no, this out. No, you were gonna ask the one. No. Okay, fine, I'll go. <laughs> we'll crop that part out. Um, okay, so. Well, we have just two kind of like last questions to get all wrapped up here. Um, this has been awesome. We're like recording way longer than I thought we would. And I love it. Um, so if you could ask people to do one thing for the whales, what do you think it would be? Oh, that's a great question. If I could ask people to do one thing for the whales, who's people? I mean, if someone came to you and was just like, I want to help the whales. What do I do? I guess I would say put your money where your mouth is and and stay vigilant, you know? And so that goes from choosing your whale watch operator with thought and care. Think about what you eat. Um, Think about your habits. And um, if you care about whales, do your best to, to care about them all the way around your own ecological food, your personal food web, you know, like mm-hmm. of, of living, like, what are you doing to help the whales? Cause you can do things to help the whales by your, your plastic consumption, by your food consumption, by who you go whale watching with, by how you travel, um, by what, what kind of clothes you buy, all of it. And, uh, how you do anything is how you do everything. And it just feels really good to walk your talk and you know to vote with your wallet. So I would say no matter where you are in the world, um, that is something that would apply. Awesome. What and then, oh, well, I mean, that's pretty much what I say on the boat. I say, put the environment in your decision-making process. So whether it's you know, reducing plastic or, you know, how you get knowing where your protein comes from or yeah, how you travel, what's your carbon footprint, like all that kind of stuff. But also like, how do you vote? How do you um, support local campaigns in your community? Like that kind of stuff matters too. So totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if people want to learn more about the Whales of Guerrero Project and want to participate or support, um, what's the best way to direct people to you? Um, so thanks for asking. The, <laughs> the project is uh, whalesinmexico.com and we have a newsletter and I'm a writer. I try and make it fun and funny and interesting. So um, I send basically a quarterly newsletter out about what we're doing. So when we do have expeditions, it comes up there. Um we live on individual donations. That's how we survive. And so um, besides some small grant support, it's individual donations that make a big difference. And those can be via donations directly to Wells in Mexico. The other really cool thing is that we partner with Happy Whale. And so Happy Whale and I, when you uh, make a donation and adopt a whale, like the whales we have in common, 
people can get out, take a picture of a whale and become the patron of a whale. And then that gets split between Happy Whale and Whales of Guerrero. So that's another way to support Whales of Guerrero. Uh, we do have an Instagram. It's not awesome, but it will be someday. Our Facebook is super dynamic. So you can look up Whales in Mexico, our Whales of Guerrero on Facebook and find us there. But yeah, I would say the newsletter, Facebook, Instagram, those are, those are the good ways to do it. Yeah. And you can find me directly through that website. Perfect. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you everyone to, for listening to this project. And thank you, Katarina, for joining us. This was an amazing conversation. I'm, I'm so, so glad. happy we Thanks had so you on. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. I'll uh, hopefully have some updates once I get more stuff published in the next year, but uh, thanks for getting your uh, whale nerd on with me. I've always called myself <laughs> people whale nerds. So I just, I just, you know, you can, you're my people. You're, you're a whale nerd. You're a whale oh, nerd. Oh, yeah. Big time. <laughs> now I have another right. place I have to travel to. Yeah, okay. I know. Yes, come and see us for sure. Yeah. <laughs> love, love, love to get on a boat with you down there. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye.